the XC's Top 5 podcast for August the 21st, 2020. It's a lovely Friday summer day, and we're recording first thing here in the morning. Lots to talk about this morning. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by Andrew Crookshank in Toronto. How are you doing, Andrew? Good, good. Yeah, it is a beautiful morning here. Yeah, we're all in Toronto. And Alex Sear, who's uh, in his new digs back in Toronto as well after a long cross-country voyage. How was the drive, Alex? It was nice. It was long, but good, accompanied by a few nice podcasts. Made it into the city. I drove in from the south end, and Drake came onto the radio. (laughs) It was a a funny experience. It was like 11 p.m. Yeah, I felt very Toronto. (laughs) Welcome back. We've got a lot to cover today. We're going to talk about athletes opting out due to COVID-19. Many great performances over the last week or so. Uh, Surprising performances. And of course, we'll kick it off with our very first topic of the day. The performance, I guess, I mean, the performance of the year thus far, for sure. Uh, Joshua Cheptegei uh, breaking the long-standing 5,000-meter world record at the Monaco Diamond League event in the last week. Uh, the 23-year-old Ugandan smashed Kenanisa Bekele's 16-year-old 5,000-meter record, which uh, Alex, I didn't, I didn't think I was going to see it anytime soon being being taken down. Uh, tell us a little bit about what went down in Monaco. Yeah, no, I think the Bekele. Any Bikili record is kind of seen as uh, one that that may not be beaten, at least for a really long time. Uh, but yeah, 12.35.36 is the new mark. So a good two seconds faster than Bikili. It was wow. amazing to watch. On the Monaco track, there was like a green light that was uh, chasing around the track on pace with the record. And he was following that light. And in the last kilometer or two, he started passing the light. And it was just, it was so quick. And he was very, very even. Um, he had to average about 60 second laps to break the world record. And he went through 3K in about 7.35 and just held on from there. Um, Cheptegei is slowly becoming known as one of the greatest distance runners that there are. He um, has a gold in 10,000 meter at last year's world champs and cross-country world champs and uh, 2018 Commonwealth Games. And lately, there's been a bit of talk of having him face Mo Farah in the 10K of the Olympics. But I think that's becoming an increasingly tough battle <laughs> for Farah. Um, and Cheptegei, that's a funny thing about Cheptegei is that people don't realize is that that's the same guy as the guy who blew up really, really badly at the 2017 cross-country worlds. Like, you'll see a video on, on YouTube. He just kind of, he's leading by a whole lot. He's from Uganda, leading a whole lot. And in the last kilometer, he can barely, barely hold on. Anyway, he's come a long way. What a run that was. Yeah, I mean, he. this is, in, I mean, I don't want to use the term unexpected star, but his, his star has definitely risen, uh, Andrew, very, very quickly in the last couple of years. Uh, pretty exciting to add him in. I think just, we did a podcast in the last six months or so talking about the this much-hyped, uh, Olympic 10,000 10, meter uh, throwdown between uh, Mo Farah and Cheptegei. And I, I think the last time we talked about it, we sort of still reserved the favorite spot for Mo Farah. I think that that is completely gone now. And I fully expect Cheptegei, as long as he's healthy, to 
destroy Farah on the track next year, which is crazy to say. Um, but Andrew, there was a lot to this race. There was a lot actually leading up to this race that uh, we found out subsequently uh, that makes this an even more somehow an even more impressive world record. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you found. Definitely a lot of uh, a lot of moving pieces to this one. Uh, I was looking through um, an article on Let's Run. And they were saying they they've actually spoken to Chef Guy, and apparently he had to get permission from the Ugandan president to even go to the meet. He, along with three other athletes, had to get permission because I guess their their borders are still closed due to the pandemic, so there's no international travel happening there. Um, so they they were actually sent off in this this ceremony where the the first lady was there and kind of wished them luck and that type of thing, and they boarded the plane. Um, and that was in Kampala, uh, which is the country's capital. But they had to fly from there to Nairobi, to Istanbul, to Nice, and then they drove to Monaco. Not to mention the place where they started, where Cheptegay's uh, training camp is, it's like a seven-hour drive just to the capital city. So the entire thing took him like 80 hours to get there. And then the guy gets off the plane and he runs this, this amazing world record. Um, I mean, I can only think about any time I ever was on a plane and I could barely walk the next day. So let alone a trip like that. That's, I mean, that's superhuman. That's insane. That is, you know, just taking a, an international, I don't know, six hour flight is exhausting. You get off the plane. There's the time difference. You're a bit hazy. Uh, your system is kind of thrown out of whack. Like I couldn't even imagine just going for an easy, sometimes it's hard to have to go for an easy run once you, uh, immediately after traveling. So an 80 hour, uh, adventure just to get to the start line. And then you smash the world record by two seconds is it's like running an ultra and then running a world record in 5,000 meters. Um, <laughs> super impressive. Uh, I guys, there's a, I've got a couple of stats here. I, I watched the race a few times and took some numbers down. I mean, he ran 60 second laps pretty much consistently. Like, I think the thing that's so, uh, surprising about this, Alex, is that unlike, uh, Bekele's 5,000 meter world record, which was kind of backloaded. He, he, he sort of built some speed in the second half and really ran it down in the last K. Cheptegei is like metronomic through this, uh, through this. And he also ran it completely solo, which is kind of mind numbing. Yeah. Well, see, I don't want to be the one to say it, but you do, you do have to consider that the technology was a lot better for Chep to guy. So like I mentioned, that green light kind of acted as his pacer. And if I recall for Bikili's record, I think he was pretty solo as well. He broke away from the pack yeah. early on. And yeah. So, you know, it's, it, it's tough because this is a two second record over 5,000 meters, which it really isn't all that much. And you got to think Chep to guys running with better shoes. He's, he's running with an electronic pacer. So, um, I think it's a whole different conversation and wondering what was more impressive. Was it Chepta guy's record or Bikili's record? Um, I think, I mean, I guess Chepta guy also faced his disadvantages with the travel, but um, the technology plays a factor. What, what do you guys think? Do you think, what do you think is more impressive? I, I think we need to first off throw, throw out there that Chepta guy's personal best in the 5,000 before this was like 1257. He, yeah. he ran like, like 22nd like hmm. PB here um, and I think that that was partially what informed our our, our take that Farah could could still beat him um, so, so 20 second PB after all of that is crazy I also saw Alex with you mentioning the the green light 
I was reading, it was an article by Alex Hutchison on, on Outside, and he, he wrote this story about the green light and about how the pacing has gone um, for 5,000 meter records over the past couple of years. And if you look back like 50 years ago, the 5,000s, uh, the way the race would go is it would go out really, really fast, have a dramatic kind of slow down in the middle for the middle couple case, and then they would ramp back up and really have a strong kick at the end. And like Michael was saying, this one with Chepta guy was like even pretty much all the way through, which is pretty incredible. Um, I also want to, with, with Hutchison's article, I want to give him a little shout out. He had this Kip Kino quote in there, which I thought was hilarious. It was something like, it was when they were first introducing the kind of lights around the track to help athletes chase world records and know how fast they were going. And uh, someone said, asked Kip Kino, the, the Kenyan, the great Kenyan athlete, whether he thought he could, he could beat the lights and break the world record. And his response was, those are lights. They're electricity. I'm just a human being. How am I going to beat that? <laughs> That's a fair answer. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I am so impressed by this world record and by it's like it just it was a total workshop in how to run a 5K. It was so methodically rolled out by uh, Cheptegei. But I also at the same time now think to myself, like, would, would you guys be surprised if he or somebody else in the next few years took down this record? I think it can happen. Um, whether he goes faster or not, who knows? It's hard to say. You're inclined to think, well, he's a 24-year-old. He's got a huge career ahead of him. But look at Bikili. His record he ran when he was 22 years old. So it's difficult to know if someone else comes, it's very possible. But again, I mean, technology is getting better and now we have a new benchmark. Why shouldn't someone go out for the 1233 next time? And he was wearing the new Nike shoe, which is always like, it's like, ah, you got to put the little Nike asterisks next to the time. Yeah, But they were, they have been allowed and we will talk about that in a second. On to the next topic. Topic number two, and we're going to stay in the lovely principality that is known as Monaco and talk a little bit more about the other uh, incredible performances that took place at this first Diamond League meet of the strange year that has been thus far. Uh, Andrew, the 5,000 wasn't the only impressive performance. Obviously, it was the uh, top performance, but there were some other really incredible runs. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what we saw in Monaco. Yeah, it's it's strange to think how fast people ran, especially considering this was was kind of the unofficial kickoff of the the international track and field circuit. It's so far only really been kind of time trials up to this point or, or inter squad meets. Um, but but Monaco has always been known to produce really fast times, and and it delivered on this. Uh, one of the events, the men's fifteen hundred meter, was was probably one of the next impressive ones after the the five thousand world record. You had Timothy Chariot, who won. Uh, he barely held on, actually. He won in 3.28.45, which is, is a pretty pretty damn fast time. But he had some of his teammates pacing, and they actually took him through the first lap in 52 and then reeled way back in and took him through the second lap in 58. So so he actually almost got caught by uh, Jakob Ingebrigtsen, the, uh, the 19-year-old Norwegian, was running him down right at the end. And Inga Britson actually ended up breaking Mo Farah's European record in that and running 328.81. It's the fastest time ever recorded by someone under the age of 20, which is pretty impressive. And then you had British runner Jake Whiteman uh, come in in 
third in 329.47, which is the number two British time uh, of all time behind Farah. But it beats out guys like Co and Cram and Ovet, which is is pretty impressive in and of itself. Um, and then in the you had some other impressive ones. The 800 meter was uh, was another fast one. Nothing nothing super crazy, but Donovan Brazer proven he's in shape. He he won in 143.15. And uh, shout out to Canadian Marco Arop, who finished third there in a, a PB of 144.14. He's really coming on after a, uh, he led actually most of it until 600, he was still in the lead. Um, and he's really come on after, after a seventh place finish at World Champs last year. And then on the women's side, you had fifth, uh, Faith Kipiego. She destroyed the thousand meter field. And she was only 0.17 seconds off the world record in the in the 1,000. She ran 2:29.15. Laura Muir took down a British record in that race as well. Uh, and then finally, in the on the women's side of the 5,000 meter, you had uh, 1,500 and 10,000 meter world champ Safan Hassan, who actually ended up dropping out with a kilometer to go, uh, leaving Kenya's Helen Obiri to. Uh, finish strong and take the meet record in 14.22.12. So a lot of really impressive results at that meet. Yeah, Alex, just sort of staring at these results. are It's it's very much what you would see in a mid-August uh, Diamond League event in previous years, Where, but in that case you have you know a month to two months of ramp-up of uh, high-level meets to get people fit. So there's incredible performances here. I think obviously the big shocker was uh, Sifan uh, Hassan dropping out. She was supposed to be going after a world record, much like Cheptegei, in the 5K, and just things didn't seem right. She just seemed really uncomfortable from the onset and stepped off the track. So that was that was actually probably beyond the world record, probably the most surprising performance or lack thereof of the day, but. Incredible times bodes well for the Olympics. We're seeing a, like a lot of depth, a lot of depth in that. The men's 800 meters is going to be really interesting, I think, in Tokyo next year. Um, but what was the the big standout performance in Monaco for you, apart, obviously apart from the, the 5,000 world record? To me, there were three. Um, one of them is the rivalry between Gemma Riki and Laura Muir that I think is really interesting because eh? those two those two athletes live together now and they train together. Muir is the established one, you know, multiple time world medalist, and Riki's just twenty two, five years younger, and they've been going back and forth this year. So last week, Riki actually got the best of Muir in an eight hundred meters in Italy. And this time Muir takes down Ricky. So I think that's going to be really interesting for, for British fans coming up to the Olympics because they have two very solid middle distance runners. And also Brazier stands out. You mentioned Brazier. The thing with him is he's coming into an event where there's no kingpin. Like I, I don't think the Rhodesia thing is happening. We're not seeing him still. Um, so I think the title of top 800 guy is up for grabs. And I don't think I've seen anyone with Brazier's consistency. You do have people who have run faster PBs, you know, Brazier's PB 143.15. It's, it's not even in the top five, I think for those who are eligible for the Olympics next year, but he's consistent he's a gamer and he can win. So he's going to be fun to watch. And one more thing that stood out for me was that 15, you know, Jakob Ingebrigtsen keeps getting better. That was kind of expected. Chariot always seems to show up for Monaco, but me, it's Jake Whiteman. Like, what a performance. Look at his three-year uh, progression. In 2018, he breaks through and runs a 3.33, which is huge. Next year, he runs a 3.31, and this year, a 3.29. So that's a huge, huge progression for him. 
he is only 26 years old. So again, for Great Britain, this is someone who uh, who's going to be very interesting to follow. Well, we're going to see more action coming up in the next couple of days. The Diamond League circuit is going to move to Stockholm. I think it's happening. I know I don't think it's happening. I know it's happening in two days' time. And what's kind of cool about what's happening right now is I, I, just looking at the, the entry list for Stockholm and comparing them to Monaco, you see this obviously in previous years because uh, athletes are going to travel from city to city trying to run as many Diamond League event- events as they can get in. Uh, but this year, obviously, I think there's a little bit of a bubbling situation going on. It's a bit of a traveling roadshow, perhaps. So we're going to see a lot of these same athletes lining up against each other, which produces rivalries. And uh, when there's nothing else at stake, there's no Olympics at stake, there's no qualifying time at stake right now, it's kind of anything goes. And I think athletes are taking more of a risk. A lot of athletes seem to be quite fit. So I think we're going to see some really good races in the next uh, uh next couple of weeks so it's it's exciting i'm like i'm excited about stockholm it's it's turned into uh must streaming i mean we're going to be watching it anyway but you're actually excited about it because you don't know what's going to happen in terms of performances uh, all right guys on to the next topic topic number three we just finished talking about how the international track circuit is ramping up again and we're seeing a lot of High-level performances for many of the best runners in the world. However, uh, one of the bright stars of, of international track, uh, of sprinting certainly, 200-meter world champ, Dina Asher-Smith, has decided that she's going to sit out the entire uh, year, all of 2020, uh, due specifically to uh, the threat of COVID-19. Um, Andrew, Tell us a little bit about her decision and uh, the specifics as to why. Yeah, Asher Smith, uh, a really impressive 200-meter runner from the UK. Uh, but the last time she raced was in Doha in October when she won the World Championship. She hasn't hasn't done any racing since then. Uh, she's told people, uh, publications, that apparently she is in shape and she could run fast right now if she wanted to, but... She just doesn't feel like it's worth the risk because of COVID. I think she's thinking long-term and she's thinking of the Olympics and she doesn't want to mess up any chances of, of catching anything and, and getting, you know, unhealthy. And, and she wants to stay in, in top shape for that. And, and the Olympics is obviously her main goal. She was, uh, she was quoted actually as saying, I'm not in the mood for racing for racing's sake this year. The stakes are a bit too high. I don't fa- fancy catching coronavirus at any event. So in her mind, it's not worth the gamble, um, which is is interesting because then you have all these other athletes who are showing up and, and running really fast. And I don't know what's what's worth it. Yeah. Hard to say. This is a fascinating scenario because um, I think that while there's this assumption that a world class athlete is going to compete if there's an event, uh, I'm not entirely surprised that certain athletes and Asher Smith is a, an example of this of top flight athlete who is got a lot to lose and not, maybe not a whole lot to gain right now um, in her career by racing this year at what she is, you know, essentially described as meaningless events or time trials of sort of a sort, or, you know, an attempt for an, an opportunity for you to, to push your, your personal best down. Um, yeah. I'm not entirely surprised about this, Alex. Uh, 
what do you, what do you, what do you think about, do you think that the, her fears are warranted and her decision is uh, the correct one or, or what? Well, you can never question a, a decision around COVID all that much. It's, it's tough to know without knowing the personal situation, you know, maybe she's living near people who may suffer from COVID if, if, if they were to catch it or who are pretty susceptible to catching it and uh, dealing with it, not a good way. Um, and it's a risk, you know, it's, it's a risk competing at Monaco athletes were running next to one another. There's officials, there's a lot of fans um, and there is physical distancing, but you know, the truth of the matter is there's a whole lot of people in one stadium and you're risking catching it every time that, that you're going out there and competing. But the thing with Asher Smith is that if she doesn't race this year, she's also risking a whole lot in another sense, sitting out, it's a pretty tough gamble. So she's a Nike athlete. And this could affect her contract with them. So, you know, we talked about this a while back. It seems like it kind of came out on, on social media that Nike athletes need to raise a certain amount to honor their contract. So other you've seen other athletes go into like a bunch of events and Justin Gatlin running like an eight second, 60 meters or whatever it was, just to make sure that they're hitting their, their quota of races. Um, and that's probably because they need to raise that amount to keep their contract. So as soon as Asher Smith is, is bowing out, I'm guessing that that may affect her contract. So it's, it's kind of a tough situation for her, but, um, shocking nonetheless. I will say this, that, you know, there's a lot that's, there's, there's much more that's unknown about COVID-19 still than what is known. And I think that while, uh, particularly in North America, particularly in, uh, well, the U S has struggled quite a bit and we're seeing in Canada sort of like, um, a little bit of a re- kind of a relaxing uh, attitude in, uh, in approaching COVID nineteen now, and this the, the the level of fear seems to be dissipating a little bit. But if you're an elite level athlete, you have to keep in mind that there are uh, some serious health repercussions from suffering from COVID nineteen that are not fully understood as of yet. For example, there was a, um, a pitcher with the Boston Red Sox who contracted COVID-19, be- became quite ill. He described the feeling of having COVID-19 as feeling like he was 100 years old. And the lingering after effects of the, of the illness have deeply impacted him. And he now suffers from a form of, uh, I believe it's like a cardiomyopathy. He has a heart condition now. And it's unclear. He's a 27-year-old guy, and it's unclear if he's going to be able to get back to playing at a world-class level in baseball. So, and there's also obviously wow. this is a respiratory disease. So there's already there's been known lingering after effects that may stay with a uh, an individual for the rest of their lives. Um, and heart and lungs. I mean, <laughs> that's running right. So. I think I think Asher Smith's decision is not a foolish one at all. Topic number four. The governing body of the sport world athletics has finally released which shoes will be allowed to be raced in and which ones will not based on a bunch of criteria. Uh, feels, Alex, like this has already been decided and the horse is way out of the barn on this, but... I guess they did have to come up with a, a, a concise rule set, break down what those, uh, the, those numbers are. 
Yeah, so um, the max sole height now um, decided on by World Athletics for shoes and specific races is uh, 40 millimeters for road races. So that's what we've already seen. That encompasses the Alpha Fly, which has been the highest stacked shoe so far. Um, but in track events, the max height for events between 800 meters, uh, well, 800 meters and up on the track is going to be 25 millimeters. Um, and that's the same for cross country. And below 800 meters, it's going to be 20 millimeters. So uh, we're seeing some change here. To be sure, this means that athletes will be allowed to wear the, um, the Air Zoom Alpha Fly next percent on the road, but not on the track. And again, according to this list, Nike's new Air Zoom Victory Spike will be um, eligible for track events. So that means that the world record in the 5,000 meters that we just saw, Andrew, is, of course, going to stand. That's no surprise. Uh, and that all the other superlative performances in the Vaporfly shoes, as as we discussed in a pod a few months ago, are, of course, going to stand. This is more a, ru a rubber stamp of anything at this point. I think we all knew that Nike wasn't going to get their precious technology taken away. And I think ultimately we're all pretty comfortable with the idea that you know, this is the new normal in, in, in running now is this technology, this very pervasive technology. Uh, but how do you think this is going to affect uh, future events, records, that sort of thing? I'm actually a little disappointed. I, I was really hoping we'd see the, the, the Elton John platform shoes uh, <laughs> finally make their appearance on the, on the international stage, but, but I guess not. Uh, regardless though, this is going to mean that we're going to start seeing some really fast races. We've already seen this stuff proven in, in some of the, the marathon majors. Uh, and as well as, as you guys mentioned, uh, the 5,000 meter world record that was just set. Um, but I think especially in the Olympic marathon next year, this could play a big factor. Uh, it's normally a pretty pedestrian pace when it comes to the Olympic marathon, but this could mean we see a couple Olympic records go down and some guys run and women run really fast. Um, Michael, I think you have some some stats on on the Olympic records. Yeah, I pulled up the 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 Olympic record for the marathon. Uh, the, the one stands out, obviously, Sammy Wenjeru's two o six thirty two from Beijing twelve years ago. Extremely hot day. Uh, at the time, it was seen as this uh, very uh, big breakthrough in Olympic marathoning because of the his tactics. He took, he took the race out incredibly hard and seemed to be running more in the style that you would see at a London or a Berlin going after a very fast time. Um, and he was able to hold on and, and run it at the time, what was considered a pretty fast time, uh, by, and, and the, on the women's side, it's two twenty three Oh seven, uh, set in 2012 by Tiki Galena, uh, from Ethiopia, and, you know, you look at both these times, guys, and it's like, I hate, I can't believe I'm saying this, but 206 and 223 look pretty pedestrian uh, in our our new, our, our bold new world of uh, of the vapor fly kind of dominating running and really pushing marathon times down. So I think it'd be surprising if those Olympic records aren't broken next year in Tokyo uh, versus the anticipation in previous Olympics where time is not really something you look at anyway. Yeah, well, think of the, uh, this is the, the, an example of an era we're in Mo Farah runs a marathon in two Oh five and everyone is disappointed. So totally we're going to be faster. 
Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. And, uh, uh, Andrew, you, what do you think that this is going to become, this is going to alter the Olympics in any way in terms of our, our attitudes towards, uh, nationalism versus say which corporation we want to win? Yeah, I, I was thinking about that. I mean, the Olympics forever has been country versus country. It's it's kind of a point of national pride and nationalism, and and you rally behind your athletes. But but with this, we're starting to see Nike athletes come in and sweep the the podium. I mean, a lot of companies haven't necessarily had the time to roll out their carbon plated shoe or really test out their carbon plated shoe yet because of the pandemic. But Nike has proven that it's it's making athletes run fast, and and we could see them sweep all of the distance categories. And it makes you wonder if it's going to turn the Olympics into more of athletic conglomerate versus athletic conglomerate. Is it going to be Nike versus Adidas rather than you know the U.S. versus Russia or or whatever countries are competing? Right. Uh, I I wonder whether whether we're going to start seeing it's going to get commodified and we're going to start seeing it as. Uh, as those are the Nike athletes that win one rather than whatever country. What do you guys think? I, I, you know, just looking back at the 2016, uh, marathon podiums, it was swept by Nike on both sides. Uh, and that was one of the first, if not the first major international competition where Nike was using, uh, secretly, I mean, to anybody else in the field, including the IOC and world athletics, they were using a, a prototype of the what became the Vaporfly shoe, and I'm sure it helped, con, you know, contributed to that success. Uh, and I think we can trace back this incredible paradigm shift to the 2016 Olympics. And yeah, I, I think that I think it will be something that certainly we're going to keep a very close eye on. Uh, uh, Alex, it's a it's a lot like when we when we sort of when we do analysis of a world. Marathon major, we're looking at Nike versus Adidas in many cases, um, and Adidas has got a long way to go. Final topic for the week. A recent study has had runners abandoning their bandanas and neck gaiters during the pandemic, uh, but this study may have been misinterpreted or perhaps was misleading. Alex, what was this study and why did we... Why should we be re- reconsidering it now? Yeah, so just recently it came from Duke University School of Medicine, and uh, the study declared that neck gaiters uh, were the least effective form of masks. And then it looks like media outlets kind of ran with that and started spreading the headline that gaiters, or I guess buffs or neck bandanas, were even less effective than wearing no mask at all. But soon after that, Science News came back and explained that this is not the case. So the study from Duke showed that more droplets are produced through the fabric of a bandana than a surgical mask. But the testing was limited to one type of bandana fabric, so it's still a pretty small study and had no real evidence that they were worse uh, than no mask at all. And right now, experts are saying that it's not a reason to abandon masks, um, having a face covering is still better than nothing at all. So perhaps better a mask than a gator, but perhaps better a gator than nothing. So Andrew Buff obviously uh, was probably their, their stock was probably riding pretty high the, the end of the winter, early, uh, early pandemic, early, early to mid spring, particularly for runners who are, you know, scrambling to find some sort of a mask, that initial concern that, 
hoarding PPE would would hinder the efforts of frontline workers, of course. So many runners thought, ah, I got this sorted out. I've already got a buff from like some trail race I ran five years ago or whatever. And particularly if you're a runner in a, in a cold northern climate like we are, you've got a whole slew of them because you got to wear them in the coldest days. Uh, I've, I totally wore one early on uh, when I was going into a grocery store. So uh, so this, this study was interesting to me. Uh, but I got a question for you, Andrew. It's, it's August. We're in a major city. You're a right-thinking, decent human being who I imagine wears a mask whenever they go into an indoor space, certainly, and whenever you're around others. But do you wear a mask when you run? Uh, I, I haven't been. No, <clears throat> not while I've been running here. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a, a tough thing to grapple with, uh, especially in, in an urban environment like Toronto, because you run down a main street and it's packed with people. You're having to dodge around people, watching for cyclists, cars, that kind of stuff. Uh, so yeah, that can be tough. As a result, I've, I've been trying to kind of either run solo or I run with people that I'm living with. Um, and then I make a real conscious effort to kind of physically, physically distance from anyone that I'm passing, trying to jump out on the road or, or I just stop and wait and let them pass. Um, I've also tried to avoid running on any main streets if I can stick to the back roads. I definitely do that. But I, I obviously understand the importance of it, especially if you're wearing a face covering in crowded places. And, and I get the mentality of like, especially early on, the the buff was a, an easy answer um, because I think we all thought just cover your nose and mouth and you're, you're solid, not the, you know, it needs this many layers or, or how much air or droplets can get through the fabric. Like I, I wasn't thinking about the type of fabric, certainly early on. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't know about you guys. I I've tried, I, I haven't actually tried running with a mask at all, but e- even just walking around day to day in public, I, I found like walking up a set of stairs. I'm, I'm like gasping wearing my mask. And I know some experts have said it doesn't really make a difference with your breathing, but have you guys noticed anything when you're out for runs or walks? Well, I ran my first uh, run in Toronto yesterday since moving back and uh, decided not to wear a mask. And I encountered a few runners who did, and I didn't wear one for the same reason. I thought it would obstruct my breathing. But one thing that I was impressed about is that, yeah, people are respectful now. There was a bit of an unease around running right when the pandemic started, and a lot of people were up in arms about it. But it seems like now after five months, people have adapted. People have found their new places to run. People aren't running in huge packs. People give themselves a distance when they're passing. Um, yesterday, never once did I feel like I was in danger or I was putting someone else in danger because it seemed like we gave each other space. Um, an interesting thing to look at now is that, you know, you got these running brands that are coming out with masks that seem to be more breathable, or at least they're marketed as being more breathable. I know ASICS has one on the market now. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that goes because sure, if someone would give me a mask that doesn't obstruct my breathing at all, for sure, I'd run with it, but I just haven't really got my hands on one yet. Interesting that in Monaco in the last week, the athletes were not, um, compelled to wear a mask. I mean, I know it sounds like an absurd idea to force an elite field at a diamond league event to wear masks, but if there's a context where you're going to have people in extremely close contact, uh, breathing very deeply, uh, and sweating a lot. Uh, it's, it's a, a world-class track meet. Um, 
Yeah, no, I, I haven't been wearing a mask running either. Uh, I have been fortunate enough to be out in the country in the middle of nowhere and like really running with no one uh, and encountering literally no one. Uh, I've encountered more wildlife than I have human beings in the last few months, uh, although I'm now back in Toronto. So like you guys, I'm I'm trying to navigate, you know, pretty busy streets. Um, my strategy has been to immediately get to uh, a less densely populated area as quickly as possible. And uh, yeah, Alex, you're right. I, people have, I think, uh, now kind of come to grips with the fact that we need to give each other a lot of space on the streets. And I've been seeing that. And I actually haven't seen many runners wearing masks. Um, I bring a mask with me. I uh, tuck it in my little uh, split shorts pocket <laughs> or in the waistband or whatever. And I've, I've actually seen, um, uh, I've seen runners uh, with the, with the mask uh, strapped around their arm <laughs> just in case, I, I guess just in case if you have to go inside, right. Uh, for some unexpected reason, you have to stop and, use a bathroom at a Starbucks or something like that. You have your mask with you, but yeah, I've not been wearing a mask. Um, this is a, an interesting study and, uh, I guess it's all common sense. I think it all comes down to common sense and being respectful of other people and thinking about other people and realizing that your actions have an effect on others, uh, as well. And to be mindful of that. All right, that's our show for the week. Thank you for listening. Uh, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter, thexc.substack.com. And of course, follow us on social media at thexcorg. Uh, that's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, thanks very much, guys. And uh, welcome back to the big city, uh, Alex. And uh, everybody stay safe.